My name's Stuart Wright, and today I've got with me the British actor Brian Larkin. Hello, Brian. Hello, Stuart. How are you? I'm very well, sir. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. The sun's shining out my window. I've actually got my desk facing. Oh, I don't, don't. It's just uh, blowing a gale down here, up up here in Scotland. It's just horrible. Don't tease me. (laughs) (laughs) If I said I was in a t-shirt, would that make it worse? Oh, no, you in a t-shirt? Yeah. No, I don't want to envision that. Thank you. Right, I'm so sure we're very talk- nice on a T-shirt, but <laughs> we're, to- we're talking about um, the film Outpost Three or Outpost: Rise of the Spetsnaz, which is the third instalment of the Outpost series that you star in. Do you want to do you want to give us a brief sort of synopsis as to what that film is before we go into any details and stuff? Yeah, sure. Well, basically, it's it's a prequel to Outpost, mm-hmm. uh, the first Outpost that was released in two thousand and eight, starring Ray Stevenson. And uh, directed by Steve Barker. And this takes us right back to the origins of Outpost and how the whole story began. And it's basically set during the closing stages of the Second World War, where there's a small covert unit called the Red Guard, or also known as the Russian Spetsnaz Special Forces soldiers, who are moving through the forest trying to gather uh, enemy intelligence, destroy communications. And uh, they come across a evidence on a map that they think there may be a German bunker or some kind of secret camp based nearby. So they sort of plan a stakeout, which they do, and uh, they ambush a a German convoy that's coming around the corner. And we attack and we find some evidence, but then all hell breaks loose. And then there's backup arrives and we are chased into the forest and fighting for our lives, where we, the survivors of which end up inside the outpost itself, where... um, a lot of crazy, bad businesses starting to happen. <laughs> <laughs> and we're and we're we're to talk because it's getting a DVD release, Blu-ray release, is it now? What yes, yes, it's in. The, I think it's. Um, well, it was supposed to be today, I believe. Okay. But I think it's now on the thirty-first of March in okay. the UK. It's already been released in Germany and Canada, and the US and Australia. What's What's the reaction to it? I, I was going to say. First of all, I'll say. I, I, I'll uh, I'll put my cards on the table. I love this film. I saw it at um, at Fright Fest when it when it premiered, mm-hmm. for which obviously I, I I tweeted you to congratulate on the film at the time. Um, it was one of my favourites. A real kind of kind of boys' own type film, almost like command Commando comics meet zombie film. Really, in, in many senses, it's a real. No, that's very kind of you. I mean, I, there has been a, a great response. First of all, uh, to a lot of reviews. I mean. Th- at the beginning, when it was sort of first uh, released in Germany, that it took a while to get a bit of momentum, and people were like, "Well, this is so different from the first film." And I think they were kind of wanting that kind of sort of, I guess that sort of freaky horror type thing, and they mm. were they were wanting that. And you can't help all the fans; you can't give them everything they want. You kind of like the first film was very great; it was great for scares and spooks, and the second one was more of a kind of action adventure with a female lead. And this one is just, as you say, it's just full-on war. It's more of a war film, mm. war horror film, than it is actually a, a zombie Nazi films. But there, there is a lot of zombies in it. Mm. And it's a really interesting thing what, what uh, Ray Brunton and, and Kieran have done here because they've crossed the genre 
once again. So you've not just got like a zombie horror, you've got war element in there with the Second World War. And it's Kieran's a huge fan of where Eagles Dare and movies like that. So there was it was laced with loads of elements like that in it. I mean, yeah, I mean, the, 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 certainly the um, the opening sequence is is pure pure war movie fun, isn't it? Mm, just like explosions, half tracks, uh, really authentic as well. I mean, a lot of the props and things in there and the way that it's been shot and graded, it does feel like a very authentic war film. So let, let us peek around the curtain here. It's mm -hmm. meant to be shot. It's meant to be where? Where is the action meant to be taking place? On the Hungarian border. And where is it shot? It was actually shot down in Yorkshire, actually. <laughs> I love that about film. <laughs> it always makes me laugh when I hear that Glasgow is used for uh, for New York and recently the Jimi Hendrix biopic is being shot in Dublin despite it all being meant to be London. Yeah, is that right? It's a good film. Well, right. look, let's, before we go into more detail, let's let's just rewind the clock a bit on yourself. Mm -hmm. look, at, look at how you got into film. Um, and let's start with the, let's start with a real sort of the first scenes, you know. What what was it what what film was it do you think that that or person even that represents a tipping point for you thinking, I want to act. Right. Well, I remember the moment very distinctly. Actually, I was uh, I was actually working as a security guard, <laughs> of all things, and I had these kind of creative urges to write scripts. And I, I don't know, I've always been quite into sort of impersonations and and things like that. And I guess it was a kind of blessing and a curse because I had these creative urges to to create something, but there was not really any outlet for it. You know, if you want to write, you have to get a publisher. If you want to act, you have to go to drama school. And it was uh, it was over the Christmas period, actually, and Taxi Driver was on. And I remember uh, De Niro's performance in Taxi Driver. It was like, that's the kind of actor that I want to be. I want to do drama. This is the kind of thing that I'm meant to do. And uh, closely followed up by Edward Norton's performance in American History X. These are just two movies that just really stood out for me. Yeah. And it was at a point in my life where I needed to make a change and... They were an enormous influence on me for many reasons, which we don't have to go into just now. But that was the seed for me. So very quickly, I made the transition to drama school. So you did you did do some formal education then in terms yes, of... Yes, yeah, I did. I went jobs. to a drama school in Glasgow for three years. And then further, I went to do some Meisner and uh, in the States as well. You did what, sorry? Meisner. And what's Meisner? Sanford Meisner. It's, a, it's an acting discipline like Stanislavski's Method. Okay. Um, I did method training at drama school, but then, uh, as I think a lot of actors will agree with me, uh, that you know you can you can find out what works, and you can also find out what had what works essentially for you. I mean, not every actor approaches acting the same way, yeah. and I just felt as if the method was good for me, but it wasn't. It it was good, but I wasn't getting everything that I'd, I I needed to be more instinctive and naturalistic, and uh, that's when the the Meisner technique. I was introduced to that, and it seemed to work more for me. Um, is, is, is that in a set? Is, is that where? Is this where like your, your, your character is almost like a cloak? You put it on, and then once it's on, it's on. Or is it? Where yeah, you so that's on that's more kind of the method. Method acting, you know, certain approaches that you take to that in theory are supposed to make you more immersed in the performance. But what yeah. they can do is they can sometimes dilute your instincts when you're acting with another actor in the moment. Okay. Also, it's up thespian type stuff you know <laughs> no no I'm, I'm fascinated I, I i interviewed a director the other day he was talking about um working with uh, neil maskell and um okay he, he, he it was just for a short Great film actor. he was playing the character of a of a drunk dad who was abusing his teenage son who had aspirations to be a swimmer and um 
And yet the conversations with Neil went along the lines of, well, what job did he do? What, why is he an alcoholic? You know, mm-hmm. and all that kind of, you know, before he even walked on set, you know, once he'd read the script, it was kind of like, it was more questions about stuff that happened 300 pages before the script started kind of thing. And I that, makes, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, I do find that some of that works, like in relation to Outpost, um, some of the, the the stuff, I mean, there's no way, I wasn't born during the Second World War, so there's no way of knowing exactly what went on. Yeah. But there's certain things, questions that are very valid that you can ask yourself, like, what is his family life like? Is he married? Um, has he ever been in love? These are the things that would affect his behaviour in the movie. Okay. Because you can behave a certain way as a character. And, and for me, film acting and all acting is essentially about behaviour and, and how you interact with other people. And also what other characters say about your character, you know, it does paint a picture. But all that stuff is very relevant. That's, it's really, I mean, that, that, it, it does prove the, the sort of brilliant collaborative nature of making a film because... Obviously, a writer is making those decisions as well as they write, aren't they? They're saying, "Well, this is how the character. This is how the character is. This is what they've come from." But then yeah. There's like this. There's like this. Then this next bit of color that's added to the character when the when the actor gets hold of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's there's three different movies. I think that you always end up watching one, but there's always three in the process. There's the one that you write, essentially the one that you shoot, and the one that is edited together. And you can change your performance in the edit room, you know. Um, an ADR as well, and an inflection of your voice. You can actually, I and mean, we're getting, we're maybe micromanaging here a little bit, but no, 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 it's not. It's yeah, so interesting. It's, stuff. You don't always have that luxury, though, Stuart. And I was fortunate enough to have four months to prepare for the role. Although it's not War and Peace, it's not Hamlet, it's not Macbeth. There was a lot of preparatory work on my part that that I did. I mean, I'd gained three stone, almost fifty pounds. Cheap, and weight I mean, and body weight. Did you have to bulk up. That, my words. Yeah, I had to bulk up. I mean, I'd been up in that weight before when I was a, a junior bodybuilder, and I'd slimmed down quite a bit to be sort of considered more for um, more commercial roles, as it were. Yeah. You know, because you do get stereotyped if you're a big guy. Usually, you get the kind of big bruiser roles and things like that. But um, this was something that that I saw as a as a physical and a creative challenge. You know, to try and work on the accent as well. You know, there was a lot of accent work. There was a lot of fight training, uh, dieting, weight weight gaining. So, so let's let's do the accent training. So, what do what do you do? That, what what you doing there? Because obviously you've got a, you've got a Scottish accent quite clearly. Basically, just walking around trying to speak in a Russian. Was that was one thing that I could. I'm quite good with accents, but yeah. the Russian accent was always something that. Um, I mean, those who watch the film can decide whether how clear it is or not, or how authentic Russian is. But it was. Uh, I've got quite a good ear for accents, so I just listened to a lot of uh, a lot of YouTube videos and accent CDs, and just trying to get the the pitch right. I mean, the other actors in the film there, um, Ivan Kamaris is Hungarian, and Elaborto uh, Peach, he is uh, I think he's Bosnian. Okay. I mean, they they were using their own accents, which are not totally dissimilar to Russian, but they also had to be understood. Because I think the other thing is as well with this, it's actually a film with German and Russian characters in it, but we all have to speak in English. Uh, mm. In English. Yeah. What What do you, I mean, as, as, as well as that prepara- preparation you were going through, what, yeah. what, because one of the things when people get to see this film is there's, there's, there is a lot of physical stuff to do in terms of this film, not just, um, not just the, the the idea of acting and, and the the emotions of it, but you're you're put through your paces, aren't you? Um, oh yeah. <laughs> what, what would you what would you say? I mean, 
There's a fight scene where you're with a guy who's about twice your size, if I can remember rightly. James yeah. Thompson. Yeah. Yeah, James Thompson is well, a lovely guy and an incredibly... <laughs> he's a killing machine. He makes money beating up people for a living. <laughs> and No, he was... Uh, yeah, there was a lot of stuff. There was a lot of fight training, a lot of different style of fighting. Um, basically, it was rooted in Sistama, which is the Russian martial art. And do you and, have any background in that at all, or is this new to you? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd done some, Stuart. I mean, to be, when I was younger, I, I did some karate and stuff and did some Muay Thai training. And there was some boxing as well I'd done in the past. But I had to revisit a lot of that stuff, you know. And as you get older and you work with the likes of James Thompson, who is an MMA fighter, <laughs> you really have to be on your game. And uh, he brought a lot to it as well. I mean, Carter Ferguson, the, the fight director, who's an enormous amount of experience, you know, he's worked on movies like Skyfall and things like that. He's in varying capacities. He's, he's a director, he's a fight director and an actor. And he brought so much to that, combined with James Thompson, mm. who really brought a lot to the fight. So they were very, I mean, we spent two days shooting that fight in the cage. Really? Yeah, and it only lasts like two minutes. But it's... Uh, no, it was really good, and James was great. He was he was a funny character, James. <laughs> what does what does the what's the name of the guy again? Who co- you say coordinates the coordinates the fights and basically directs the fights? Carter Ferguson. Yeah. So what what does what does he bring to the to the scene that, that obviously a director alone can't do? What is it? What is it they they give they help you achieve with the stuff with the fights? Well, I really what what Carter and I guess other fight directors do is that they're, they're they're like direct they're directors themselves. They have to find the sweet spot in which you, as an actor, an individual person as well, are at your creative best, and also what your limitations are, and not to try and to in some ways try and push you beyond that in rehearsal. Mm. But the, due to the finite amount of time that you've actually got daily to shoot something, they basically just try and work within your energy levels and what you've got. And they basically create a creative space for you to move around and trust the other actor. Right. And it's just guidance, really. And you feel as if you're doing it yourself. That's a sign of a really good director, that you're really doing it more or less yourself. And just the ideas that he would come up with, and he would spot a moment that would need filled, or just a very good way of... Because the thing about doing fighting on camera, it's all about angles, how you sell it. And if a punch or a kick or an elbow or a knee is actually reading on camera. And these, what Carter does is he'll, he'll talk to you about always be aware of where the camera is in relation to where you are to your opponent. Mm. And it'll talk you through very quickly where you can actually throw the punch to make it look as if it's hitting because you'd never connect. You're never really connecting with another actor. You might have a, you know, a, a slight tap here or there. Yeah. But they just, they're, they're really good there as reassurance as well and guidance on selling the actual fight itself. Yeah, because it must, it must be a, big, a world of difference from, there's your mark on the floor. If you go from A to B, then you'll be, uh, and talk to Fred over there, you'll be yeah. right. And then suddenly you're rolling on the floor, which obviously yeah. you don't nearly have as much control. It's like a dance, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But except you're, you're fighting. That's really what it is. And were there any bumps and bruises? Or did you get oh, your... yeah. <laughs> I, I suffered quite a, a horrendous knee injury, actually, in Yorkshire. Oh, really? At the end of the, the first week. And it was basically a stunt that went wrong. And when I had all the space that I needed to make the fall, but there was a branch that was just kind of merged out of the out of the ground and I twisted my knee on it. And uh, it was quite badly swollen. So I had to go through the be- the rest of the film in uh, painkillers. Oh, my word. And, uh, and bandaged up every day. 
I mean, yeah, because so I, I thought, I mean, as much as the fighting is physical, I thought some of the stuff where you're having to leg it through the woods and stuff is where you can see that they're really putting you through your paces in terms of what you're having to do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, during some of the fight stuff as well, um, and this was actually volunteered by James, who, who plays the Berserker. Okay. Uh, some of the fights, he just actually come off a, a, a world championship fight, which he'd actually won. Right. And I, th- I can't remember the guys, Bobby Lashley or somebody he was fighting, and he, he turned up on set on day one, and his face was just, comp- this is a guy who's six feet five, 25 stone, and built like a brick shit house, yeah, and yeah, someone yeah. has beat the shit out of him. Like, how, <laughs> how big's the guy that you've been fighting? It's ridiculous. And he had trouble seeing in his mask and all the makeup. Yeah. And he's never acted on camera before. He'd never, he's used to just really hitting people. Yeah. And some of the, the punches weren't selling. And his his reactions were a little bit slower because, you know, he's been beaten to all hell. He can't see. His eyes are bloodshot, and he's got a mask on his face. And, and I could see Kieran getting a little bit kind of like, oh, this isn't selling. This isn't selling. And then James picked up on it very intuitively and said, just, just hit me, mate. So I ended up having to punch James for real at full force. Really? Sometimes to act, yeah, to actually he said, just do it. It's fine. I, it's, I can handle it. I do this for a living. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just hit me. <laughs> The only opportunity I would ever actually get to throw a real punch at somebody like that. Um, but no, it, it's it's sold, so and it's in the movie. So what you're seeing, some of that stuff is actually real. <laughs> um, so in terms of um, how how did you how did you get on board for the role? What was how was how was you approached, or how did you how did, did you audition for it? Was it was, it, was you picked for it? Uh, well, actually, I I auditioned for Black Sun. Okay. Kieran had, uh, I didn't know Kieran at that point. It was actually uh, Arabella, his partner, who had seen, who, who had, I uh, went to the Toronto Film Festival with all the Scottish producers. Mm. And at that point, uh, I didn't know Kieran. It was only shortly after that I was introduced to him. And I auditioned for Steve Barker for Black Sun. And it was Kate Planton who was casting. And I got very close to one of the roles. I think it was the role of McAvoy. But it didn't go my way, unfortunately. But uh, Kieran had me in mind and got in touch with me several months before they were due to shoot and asked me if I just I wanted the role. He didn't even audition me. Okay. It, I, th- I guess he'd seen my audition tape, and uh, because I was local as well, we'd uh, you know we could we could meet up. It wasn't as if I was a million miles away. And sure. I'd also, to my credit as well, I'd, I'd been away working on several other action films at the time. Yeah. So I, I had the experience in working in that genre. Yeah. Um. The, the gunfighting and the running and the jumping and the screaming and all the all that kind of stuff. So that was it was a very, very quick transition. It's made the offer to him, asked me if I wanted to do it, and then I spent my four months working, working with him on it. What I, I mean is, is from an acting point of view, is is there a difference from from an actor's from your point of view, not from obviously my point of view as a consumer, I can I can see I can see a difference between, you know, a kitchen shrink melodrama performance and a and an action performance, but from an, from when you're acting, you know, the camera's rolling. Mm-hmm. How, is 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 there a difference in your mind when you're going through the process of shooting the film in terms of you doing an action film? Because, like you say, you you you'd done some other action films, and that made you, that helped maybe helped you be prepared or suitable for this film. Yeah, it's a good question. Actually, all I can say is, it's really down to your own kind of your own taste and what you think is actually convincing and good to watch. I mean, it's undoubtedly there are some fantastic performers out there doing some really good work. I mean, the list is endless. And but not everybody thinks that 
they are the best actor. And the similar thing is when you when you come to this kind of genre and you, you know, it's not full on uh, De Niro or Pacino or Matthew McConaughey's resonant characters. There is a sense of you have to develop a sense of taste in what you think is actually good. And all you try and do is just work instinctively within that. I mean, there is a lot of technical stuff involved, but when you're working in the genre and you're just trying to do it, you, you just you rely a lot on the director's eye as well. That they're sitting behind the monitor or watching you from the side of the set saying this guy is pulling it off. Yeah. You know, and there is a very kind of leading man style to this genre as well. There's a kind of stoicism, you know, there's a kind of the broad-shouldered, stereotypical kind of... I mean, they are quite stereotypical characters in Outpost, but you have to still be believable. No, and I, th- and I think... You and, know? But I, th- I, I, I mean, that was one of the things that was enjoyable about it, was was the film knew that, and it didn't try to pretend it wasn't. Therefore, we as viewers, and I spoke to you know a few friends who sat with me watching it, and we all thought the same, really. It was, you know, we could enjoy it as well, because it wasn't trying to be anything but that. But that meant it was, it was you know... It was high. It was a high quality thing in the end. Yeah, no, I think I think you're right. There's, I mean, it was a great experience uh, working with Keenan because he knew the kind of film that he was trying to make. He even said at the beginning, "This will never win awards. This is just balls out action horror," and it delivers on that. And anybody else that is going to watch, buy the DVD and not appreciate it, then you're watching the wrong movie. Yeah, <laughs> you should be watching something else. Yeah, it's a bit. It's like apples and oranges, isn't it? Kind of thing. Yeah, it is what it is. It's just all out genre action and fasc- and the fasc- stuff. I'm fascinated that you said earlier that it's been released in Germany, not not for any other reason than what's the German reaction to the idea that the Nazis were making zombie soldiers? I think that they really, I think they actually get off on it. Actually, yeah, I think they actually enjoy that they have that historical uh, thing that they can refer to. That nobody really knows exactly what went on, yeah. but they like people trying to ex- show that maybe perhaps this did. They like the dream and the imaginary of it. Mm. They do. I think they kind of bask in it a little bit. And they were first to release it. Okay. And by all accounts, they actually have they have cut it down. They've cut the violence down quite a bit. And that's one thing that does baffle me, that there is a different version available in Germany where all the gore has been cut out. And it's like, well, is the film not about that? What what for the sit for sit for DVD releases, obviously? Yeah, yeah. There's the, there's the black edition, what they what they call as the uncut edition released okay. and there's also the, the the censored version as well. Ah. Well I mean I've seen I mean I was over in Berlin about eighteen months ago and um and I went in their equivalent of HMV mm-hmm. and there is a whole kind of there's there's a there's a big demand it would seem for British films. You know, there was like there was films that that would be called Football Hooligan Two here or something, but in Germany it's Pitbull or something like that. So there's clearly okay. there's clearly a fan of sort of our our British culture stuff. I just find I just find it fascinating that you know we're we're selling them their own their own mythology. <laughs> well, I think that's the interesting thing as well. You know, when you when you make a film uh, about another country, it, I guess there is a lot of curiosity there in mm. the minds of the the other the other countries. That it's like, well, is that your take on us? And it must be fascinating for them, and uh, particularly with you know this kind of genre. That you know, oh, really, is that how the Nazis were? Is, is that what was really going on underground? Um, the whole mythological thing must really fascinate them. Well, I mean, I mean, we know, we know, we know Hitler liked his astrology and stuff, don't we? So, <laughs> who, who, <laughs> More than just his astrology. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, he was he was proper evil, but we know. Yeah. But there was there was the mad stuff as well. He liked the ladies as well, did he not? 
<laughs> as as the film sold in Russia then as well, do you know? Uh, I've seen a couple of Russian reviews. I, I know they exist, but I haven't read them, so I can't read Russian. <laughs> but, uh, oh, I'd love to see because uh, obviously, paint. You know, the you know, we don't always get the Russian as the hero. In, that's true. Yeah, in, in films, you know, given you know, given the whole kind of post Second World War kind of Cold War mm-hmm. feelings. No, I really couldn't say. I don't know. I'd like to know what they think of it. Yeah, no, I'd be fascinated. Now, look, I, I was looking back at your credits, and I see that you've you've got uh, in two thousand nine. There's a film called um, Running in Traffic. Yes. You also starred in, but you also wrote. Yes. Can I what what can I ask you then? What 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 do you feel the kind of the differences are with the stresses and strains of writing a script as opposed to perform the pressure to perform from a script. Um, I think you know with the experience of running in traffic, it was largely down to the director Dale. There was a Dale Corlett. Hmm. It was a very good experience for me in many ways, and it was also a very challenging experience. I'm so glad I did it because yeah. you get to learn so many different aspects of filmmaking. This was a passion project for me. It was a story very close to my heart. Okay. Um, about the experience of losing my father uh, to cancer, and it's really about a character, uh, Joe Cullen, who's a manual labour worker, trying to overcome that, trying to uh, almost sort of resist his grief and and not let it in and not experience uh, that that whole just not you know shutting out grief and not experience not trying to experience the emotional side of losing someone. Yeah. And in many ways, it's a passion project, and it was a kind of goodbye letter to my father mm. and it, combined with that very because I was so close to the project I was going to make it no matter what and that is what drove me to to making it and to producing it and um yeah it was a very it was a very it was a wonderful experience and I was fortunate enough to be surrounded by people who were at a point in their own careers whether it was actors or filmmakers or anyone who who understood what I was trying to do yeah and and they were just happy to be a part of something that I guess meant something to someone and really did. And it wasn't just a, a kind of generic schlocky film. Um, this very emotional film. And did, did, it's did not that, for everyone. No, of course, of course. When, 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 you know, given, given what you've told me there about the subject matter is, yeah. was, was in that sense, was it, was it also, presumably then was it also quite a cathartic experience for you as well as the compulsion to write it? Absolutely, yeah. They were right on the head there. I didn't realise that it was uh, it was so much so until afterwards. It actually helped me in many ways, um, because you identify some a, a huge um, incident in your life, such as losing a beloved parent, yeah. and you channel that grief creatively. It has an enormous uh, help. I mean, one thing you do have to be prepared for is the criticisms of the film. Be prepared for it. If anyone else ever does it, don't you know. Don't expect everyone to love what you've actually put up on the screen, although it's very personal to you. And you, you know, you try and make it as accessible to other people as possible. It's not just about me and my life. It's not yeah. a biography. It's not one hundred percent accurate. It's still drama, isn't it? It's not just about yeah. the truth. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what what would you say is uh, looking looking back on on your experiences of working in 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 film, either as an actor or even? I mean, do, 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 are you intending to? Do you, do you intend to write other stuff, or is that was that literally that was that one off for you? No, I, just, I we were talking earlier before the, you, we started the interview about mm-hmm. uh, a film that I'd like to make, hopefully this year, uh, maybe early next year. It's a far more commercial project. It's a bigger scale. It's a science fiction post-apocalyptic story okay. uh, called the Virtual Network, which has um, been something that has been I've been developing for the past couple of years. It was a short. 
and I know, we now have a script and looking at cast and things. So, yeah, I mean, I, I do, would like to do, I would like to direct more. I do like to direct. I would like to try and direct and act, which would be probably the next step after the virtual network. Do you not have eyes in the um, back of your head? <laughs> should be I th- well I think you need to have eyes everywhere yeah and the soles of your shoes as well making sure somebody doesn't steal them when your back's turned Cause it's, um, cause especially it's, in a, a film set there's a lot of pressure there isn't it because obviously you're the person that's going to going to veto everyone's performance and yeah if, and if and if you think they've got any doubt in you then it's kind of like <laughs> they could be going well what are you doing <laughs> exactly no I think the thing is Stuart you kind of have to choose your your collaborators very very wisely and yeah. People that you know who are not going to be, as I, when I say difficult to work with, they're not going to be too much work. I'm not looking for a character to walk in the door. I'm looking for someone who's a good actor or actress mm. to come in and, and work on something. And it has to be a amount of patience there as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's, there's so much to directing and I don't think that, and there's so much to acting that I wouldn't want to direct something and act in it if I couldn't give another actor what I would expect from a director. There's so much preparatory work. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. What, 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 was your tra- what was your transition from, sort of, was that, was uh, Running in Traffic your kind of first stab at directing, or was it something you'd been playing around with, with shorts and stuff before? No, I didn't, I didn't direct uh, oh, Running sorry, in no, Traffic. Sorry, no, yeah. yeah, I was going to, I was going to direct, I had directed a couple of shorts before, actually, when yeah. I was, when this is one thing that, uh, I've always been curious about film act since I started the uh, when I went to drama school there was no acting for camera at all it was all theater based okay. and because I was so heavily influenced as I said before with uh, American History X and Taxi Driver movies like that yeah. it was the performance of the leading actors that really stood out to me and I thought well, what is it they're doing that I'm missing out on what is it they're doing that other actors in some soaps and lesser movies are not doing what is it that's so good and part of it it was i realized was obviously to do with the role itself Mm. it was to do with the choices these actors were making and i I was very curious about how i could actually be a really good screen you know could i be a good screen actor so i started making short films and through the process and directing other actors and guiding the performance and and writing the scripts and acting in a very small way myself in these films I could got a little bit closer to, in my my own mind, what I was thinking. Okay, that's what they're thinking there, and getting closer to the performance, making it more intimate, and just um, through the that was my film school actually, and in many ways it was my acting for camera uh, film but, school but as well as to make more films. I mean, I'm not sure. You know, to the layperson, the, the the idea that acting for camera and acting for stage might might involve different skills might could be a surprise. I was I was, but I was. I was at a Q and A late last year with it for the um, Sunshine on Leith with Dexter Fletcher was there, yeah, and, and obviously that's an adaptation of a musical into a musical film, but obviously he's still you've you've moved it into the realm of cinema, mm. and he, when he first got the script after it had been written for screen as it were, he said he was looking through it and there was there was one bit where it was a kind of huge expositional kind of speech from Peter Mullen, and mm-hmm. he said I just put a red line through it. He said Peter Mullen can do that with one look at a camera. <laughs> yeah, you just have to say anything. And that's the difference, isn't it, between cinema and stage? You, you, <laughs> we, the audience, read a lot more through what the camera tells us to look at. Yeah, than, than, than what, and I, yeah, I totally get. You know, I, I have so much respect for for directors who are who are trusting enough of their actors, and it also has to be there in the script. But directors who are intuitive enough to say, "Look, no, we don't need to say this. 
he'll say it with a look, with a glance, even with you know, with one line of dialogue or even less, it's it can work even more effectively. Because audiences are so smart, they know. You know, they're they're actually thinking ahead of what's gonna happen next, you know, where's this character gonna go? That you don't need to you don't need to say it. You can show it, and that's what cinema is. It's a visual medium. No, I mean, I must admit, I don't know if you've seen the film American Hustle. Not yet, no. Okay, well, I watched that, and I'd love to see it with no voiceover. Okay. I felt like I was getting instructions on the film while I was that's, watching it. That's Hollywood, though. Oh, I know. You know, they it's have weird. to spell it out to you. It's weird, because it, yeah. you really felt like it didn't need it. You know, there's bits where it kind of felt like they're going, she's got blonde hair. Look, and then you can just see it. And you're going, well, I know she has, I can see it. But it's it's this weird thing where... It, it, it kind of kept taking me out of the film a little bit. Whereas you watch Wolf on Wall Street, which has exposition, you know, has voiceover and it has even talk to camera. But I didn't feel like that was that was misused. I mean, it's it's, it's a case of what's appropriate in some senses. Mm-hmm. And I think that's down to the producers as well. I think that sometimes there's this fear that the the story or the the theme that you're trying to convey of loss, of of greed, of of love, is not actually getting into the hearts and minds of the audience unless you actually sledgehammer it. Yeah, yeah. Sledgehammer. Sledgehammer's a cracker nut. <laughs> so uh, can you can you give us, I mean, draw from your acting, your writing, or your directing, but, you know, what would be a valuable lesson learned early on in your in your sort of film career that still stands you in good stead today? Oh, when it comes to, I think it would probably be um, acting, probably one of the most defining things that I've, I've ever and it stood by me is do less, internalize something. As as what we were talking about just there, you know, why say something if you can? I mean, a lot of actors want more dialogue, but to be honest, really, it's all about what's happening inside. It's all about what's happening in the eyes, and that's where the truth lies. Okay, that's, that seems sound advice to me, and that, and that's a, another confidence thing, isn't it? It's believing you're doing enough. Yeah, give, him, give me more to do than I can show I'm doing it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think that that lies in um, when you're working with a director, you have to trust that director's interpret. If you think, you know, looking at a director's work and say, "I really like what you've done," you, how much of that was in the mind of the actor, and how much of that did you guide them with? And you have to trust your director as well, because you, you know, even if you watch your own performance or your edit, you know, I've edited, edited my own acting performances as well. Yeah. If I've not been cringing through some of them, <laughs> you kind of have to develop a sense of, you know, an intuitive thing like, um, do I believe this this performance? And it's quite difficult when you're actually looking at yourself saying, do I believe myself? And as long as you're not cringing, mm. it's probably going to be okay. And it, as long as it's quite believable, you're going to be all right. And uh, yeah, I think that, I think they were actually catching on to more on that in television as well, like Breaking Bad. I mean, he was watching Line of Duty the other night as well. I have a friend who was in it. And the performances in, in television nowadays, it's just, there's not screeds of dialogue. You know, there's, there's, they're doing it more with looks and glances. And obviously there's a lot of score and music in there as well. Yeah. That's kind of guiding the emotion of the character's journeys, of the story. the likes of Scorsese doing Boardwalk Empire and Fincher doing House of Cards. Yeah, it kind of it brings cinema to TV, doesn't it? I suppose. Yeah, we're seeing more and more of that all the time now, and I think that's fantastic. No, without a doubt, without a doubt. Um, one of the things that we, we like to do on the podcast, and I can't remember now. A confession to make to the listener: I've done an interview with Brian once before, and a technical fault threw me sideways and very much embarrassed me. So I'm glad and happy that he, he came back on to do re-record a podcast with me. 
Um, but the la- I don't know if you remember the last question. The last question was to recommend a favourite British war yes. and or horror film mm-hmm. that you think maybe deserves a bit more kudos. Well, there's this this issue whether or not Aliens is actually a, a British film. I would say it's a British film, and I would say that that would be what Alien, uh, the first one. Aliens, yeah. Okay. Um, that's my favourite. That's my favourite horror film. Okay. And what is it? What is it about that? Because that is obviously a stone cold classic, as it were. So what, well, it was what way it? ahead of its time. Yeah. What is the it? Atmosphere, like the atmosphere. I mean, you're, it's the atmosphere. It's the, it's the scares that are building. It's the characters. The depth. Of, we just don't make films like that. I don't think we make films like that anymore. I mean, I've I've, I've had a little, I've studied it a bit, and if if you look at the way we're told to write scripts, as it were, from a kind of academic point of view, mm-hmm. it breaks a lot of the rules. There's, there's almost like 45 minutes with very little happening. It's all kind of character in the world they live in. It feels like a, a very long act one, but you, mm. you, but you, you, you immerse yourself in it. And then once the, the alien comes out of the stomach, then it's like a roller coaster from that. Yeah, it's like it's, you've been wound up and you know something's going to happen, you know something crazy is going to kick off, and you're just waiting for it. And the more silence there is building up to that moment, but the more it, suspense. I, I mean, I like that. that, that for me, that, that those kind of tonal changes are what make good films it's sort of you you um you you go into most films with an expectation so i don't think i need it rammed down my throat in the first three minutes all the time i just need to know the world i mean yeah exactly and i think the most important thing is and they say is to always set the tone if you have a quite a sinister tone set you know for your first half hour Hmm. you're building characters you know you're you're not really much into the exposition at that point it's act two that you start to really start to wind things up exactly you know, with quite an explosive third act, I think that's the sign of really good cinema and really good filmmaking. Now, if 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 we go into a hypothetical realm, and you could be in any re- <laughs> rebooted film or go back in time and and take a lead role, oh. would 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 you go for Taxi Driver? Would you dare? Yes. <laughs> You'd like a but stab. I, I do it as a musical, and I get Dexter <laughs> Fletcher to direct it. <laughs> Well, look, um, thank you very much for your time, Brian. Thank you, sir. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. I'm really glad that you were you were happy to come back on. Yeah, I'll I mean, both... I think it was so much better the last time, though. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was better, too, to be honest with you. Yeah, you um, were better. I was better. I think I was better. You were fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, Outpost Rise of the Spetsnats is out 31st of March on DVD. We'll put a, we'll put a link with the podcast. And, um, and look, it, with other projects as they, as they come on board, you know, keep us posted. Yeah, and, uh, I'd love to talk to you as you know those things become more of a reality and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, let us pray with uh, as Brian O'Malley's "Let Us Pray" uh, is released this year, of which I'm, I'm in. Uh, okay. Liam Cunningham uh, stars Doug Russell, Neil Fulton, okay, and Pollyanna McIntosh as well, and Hannah Stanbridge, and Johnny Watson, Jonathan Watson, my good friend Johnny, he's in there too. Brian Vernell, so I'm just plugging all my friends now. No, do it, go, go for it. That, that's released at uh, some point this year. I believe. Okay. Right, okay. I'll, uh, look I'll look at the schedules that. and see if I can find out when. Yeah, look out for that. And also, uh, Outlander TV series are appearing in that later as well. Nice one. So, are you, are you going to be? Is, are you taking your sci-fi film to Cannes this year? Yeah, I believe Eddie, my producer, he will be. Okay. Yeah. So we'll, we'll have the script by then. So that'll be all. We'll see what happens with that. But we can we can chat more about that as things develop. Yeah, please. I mean, I'm I'm going to be in Cannes myself, so. Um... Maybe I'll, I'll drop a line or something if you want. If you want to we'll do me. lunch, man. Indeed. We're going to do lunch. Indeed. Well, look, best of luck with it. And um, 
like I say, I, I, I saw this at Fright Fest and it was one of my favourites. It's a proper uh, proper beat em up horror action movie that, uh, is, is, uh, that knows what it is and enjoys what it is too. It's the Britflix.com podcast. It's the Britflix.com podcast.